Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, June 12th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Squadron Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. So we're back. We're doing this again for another week. I want to thank everybody that sent in emails about uh, last week's episode and uh, us talking about Black Lives Matters and all that stuff. Uh, I got a lot of good, positive feedback on that. Um, we're not going to be talking about that this week. Uh, let's talk about what I guess. Let's start with what we've been doing. I honestly have not been doing a lot this week. You're probably not going to hear a lot from me on this episode of the podcast. But the one interesting thing I did do is Universal Studios Hollywood. They have this shopping area outside of it called Universal City Walk, which is a little confusing because every Universal Studios has a city walk. So it's like a, a shopping district that's very touristy. It's larger than life. It's uh, themed, has a lot of neon signs and you know, big like there's a dragon and stuff like that. Uh, locals don't like it for the most part. They call it Shitty Walk um, because everything's overpriced. Uh, it, it is. I. I I will say this outside of movie, outside of uh, going to Universal Studios, the only time I usually go to City Walk is when there's like a Christopher Nolan film because they have uh, one of the only like real IMAX theaters in the area at the uh, Universal AMC uh, theater there. Um, but uh, they do have a couple cool stores and stuff. Anyways, uh, this is a long preamble to say. Uh, a couple days ago, they announced out of nowhere that they were opening Universal City Walk. So they're not opening Universal Studios, the theme park yet, uh, but they are opening this shopping district. And if, as you know, I run a YouTube channel that uh, kind of covers the theme park world. So Kitra and I went to Universal City Walk to check it out and film it for the channel. And uh, I want to talk about it here because it, it's really weird, guys. It's it's. Well, first of all, uh, you know, it's everything that you probably have heard about where, like, you know, you park in the garage. Uh, first of all, 
complimentary parking. It's usually like $15 or something, which is another reason why uh, Los Angeles locals don't go to City Walk. Uh, but uh, complimentary parking, uh, you have to follow these arrows because there's arrows like going to your car from another direction and going from your car to City Walk in another direction. So you're not crossing paths with people that are leaving City Walk. And then you get a temperature check uh, to be able to enter City Walk. And uh, it, it was kind of dystopian, to be honest with you. It's like this big touristy place. But I, I think between uh, counting Kitra and I, there was probably like this is a huge shopping area. And I think there's probably like 30 people there total. So it, it felt very like the world has ended and we're just exploring this like dilapidated or not dilapidated because it's still, uh, you know, everything's fine. But like it was just like so empty and it's not even like everything was open in City Walk. They've this is like phase one of their opening, which has like, I want to say probably like eight or ten stores out of, you know, dozens of stores uh, open and n- none of them are that very interesting. Uh, we did eat at uh, and and you're walking around the city walk and there's like every few minutes there's an announcement from the Universal Studios announcer over the intercom, like, you know, making an announcement about, you know, you have to keep your mask on, you know, keep social distance. It, it just feels very post-apocalyptic and dystopian. It feels like we're living in a sci-fi, you know, future uh, <laughs> world. Uh, we ended up eating at one of the restaurants and this is one of the this is the first time i've eaten out in over three months i think at a restaurant um and we ate at johnny rockets because that was the most interesting of the bunch that were open and it was really weird that the waiter came to the table wearing not only a mask but also a face shield and uh i don't know it's really weird like are you guys have any of you guys eaten out? Like I know, like recently, uh, it, it, especially in California, like they've started to relax some of the things. Are like has anybody actually ventured out of their house to actually eat at a restaurant? Uh, yeah, I I actually went to one place, did my research, um, found out a place that was taking it seriously. One of my local haunts was, um, you know, mask masks, gloves, you know stream distance between people i went during a low hour play low hour time so my wife and i were the only people practically there and i felt really weird i felt really guilty about it i felt really bad about it <laughs> but at the same time it was very nice to be out of the house i mean i've seen pictures of places that aren't taking it seriously if i walked up to a parking lot and saw like you know crowds of people gathered together and no masks and i would probably turn around and walk right away but uh fortunately this place was and even though, like I said, I still feel really bad about it. But at the same time, it was very clear from the managers who recognized us because we're regulars there. Uh, we were regulars before all this started. was very, very happy to see us, very happy to have the business. So it was a very odd feeling to know that, one, you were missed. Two, uh, you're happy to be there. And three, you're incredibly guilty for enjoying yourself. So it's a very weird mixture of feelings. Uh, but yeah, I, I did I did eat out one time. I feel like you shouldn't feel guilty. You're helping support local business. You're not doing it at the risk of safety to you and others. Like, it's not like, you know, a, a, it sounds like they were handling it well and you were the only people there. Maybe a handful of other people. Um, we were, we, yeah. we, we, 
our regulars at the bar there. We always eat and, and drink at the bar. Uh, so like the bartender and the, and the manager who was on duty both recognized us. And uh, the bar stools were all separated by, you know, six feet minimum. Uh, so we actually had to pull two bar, bar stools together, you know, which created an even bigger distance between us and the next group. So, uh, yeah, like I said, maybe like two of the people at the bar and maybe half a dozen people at the entire restaurant. And like, so this was just like on a um, an afternoon after work. Uh, so it wasn't even like, you know, a major time. Uh, n- although I, I feel bad saying that because normally they're a big happy hour place. So the fact that their happy hour was a little dead, made me feel really bad for them. Yeah. It, it, it's weird. Like I know Las Vegas reopened, the, uh, last week and I watched some vloggers who went there and I was watching their vlogs and it seems like Las Vegas, at least the, like the restaurants and stuff are taking it a little bit seriously. Like they've put up like these plastic partitions between each of the booths and stuff and uh the menus are like qr codes that you scan with your phone so you look at the menu on your phone and you're not touch touching pa- paper and there's like a dish there of like you know packets of ketchup and packets of salt so you're not like touching salt shakers and ketchup the the, the weird thing is when i was at johnny rockets like the it, if aside from the guy with the mask and the face shield that was waiting on us, it, it seemed like normal business. It didn't seem like the seats were like spaced out in a social distancing way. Not that there were, there was other people in there and they were seated far away from us. Um, everybody was spread out, but it's not like they like did anything special to their place to make it f- fit these times. And, you know, we got a hamburger and, and fries and, I'm pretty sure I was like the first person in this booth that day because there was nobody at City Walk. Uh, but I was like squeezing ketchup out of a ketchup bottle. And I was thinking like, you know, even if I wash my hands before I ate, I'm touching this ketchup bottle that could have been touched by the previous people there before us. There there wasn't because I can tell you we were some of the first people in City Walk. Um but it, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like they're completely taking it seriously outside of like the like guidelines where you have to wear your mask and social distance and, you know, temperature checks like in the actual area. Like I wish like the restaurant was had more. Does that make sense? Like it, did, Jacob, did it, did your restaurant? I don't want to throw them under the bus, but like was there any like differences in how they served you? Uh, yeah, all, there was no actual silverware. It was all uh, pre-wrapped, you know, uh, utensils. Um, there was no physical menus. There were uh, printed out menus on paper that they threw away when we were done with them. Uh, uh, all, all the servers wore masks. It was, it just, it felt very different. It felt very odd. Like it was a, they used to have a full salsa bar. It's, it's, a, it's a text mask, text mix joint and that was shut down. You had to request, uh, like, you know, very specific salsas. And, um, like I said, I don't, I can't see behind the scenes. I don't know how things look behind the scenes, but, um, it was, from my perspective, I, I was, I was impressed. I've, I've been in. I've been in the service stations in the city that, that, that still weren't requiring that were still like, weren't taking this seriously. So, and I stopped going to them. <laughs> so let's <laughs> just put it this way. Um, I would go back to this restaurant knowing um, what I know now, which is, that yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't feel like, I feel like they are doing the absolute best they possibly can under the circumstances. And I, I don't feel the same way about other places in the city. Yeah. No, I, I felt good eating out. It felt like, it felt like a little bit of normal that I've been like craving, but also I, I get the same feeling as you, Jacob. Like I felt guilty that I was doing it. Like it felt like I shouldn't be. Oh no. Uh, 
I, I wanted to hear from the rest of you guys. Like, is eating out at a restaurant, is that something you're even considering doing in the next month? Have a least uh, share with uh, Ben. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would say no. Um, but you know, I've for for a while when this whole thing first started, my wife and I were like really, um, I don't know what the word would be, uh, hesitant, I guess, to even like order food out at all. Like we just went and you know we would just make our own stuff for weeks. I think the first maybe maybe the first month even, um, and we've loosened up on that quite a bit. Like multiple <laughs> times a week now, we'll we'll you know, try to find a local restaurant or something like that and, and support them and just get food and either eat it in the car, you know, if it's lunchtime or something, eat it in the car outside or, um, you know, just bring it home and, and eat it there. But I, I, I can't really imagine, especially with like, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, but a lot of places, uh, you know, like uh, Orange County and, and California and like Florida where my parents are and all that stuff, like the a lot of the cases are spiking right now so uh, this is not the time where i'm gonna start loosening my own personal um approach to things and, and start taking things less seriously i'm definitely gonna keep clamped down for a while but yeah. i guess that's a that, that's a question is, is going to a restaurant and social distancing and all that stuff is it taking it less seriously i think hmm. um um i don't know if you're asking uh, the whole group for this but i i do think that yeah. um I, I think you can take your precautions when going out and so and um going out of your house and your home and even going to restaurants um i it is probably a matter of personal just uh preference um but people are going for example to protest and they and it's easier to get tests now for for covid so they are able to get tested and go out and like uh, social distance so i think it's it, it's not um, it's not uh, irresponsible to go out, but it is just kind of based on your own personal feelings about it. Um, I just wanted to say that for me, I think yeah. it's it's um, it's going to be a while before I want to go out to restaurants. I never really ate out that much while I was in New York, anyways, because I was saving money by cooking for myself. Um, and um, I I just uh, I'm a little bit wary too because of those reports that came out a month or so ago of how in China a few restaurants that had reopened um, there was some spread of uh, COVID because of the air conditioning uh, circulating like the mm. air and the spit um, of people. So it just um, I feel like it's it's never going to be completely safe. But uh, as as long as like you know, you, you act responsibly and, um, you know, wash your hands. I, I think it'll, <laughs> it'll be okay for the most part, but still people should be, be cautious. Yeah. And of course you have the benefit of like your parents are amazing cooks. Yes, they are. Right. <laughs> uh, Chris, any interests in leaving the house and eating at a restaurant? No. <laughs> Brad? I um, have gone t just to get takeout uh, and done drive through stuff, but no, I, w I won't be going to a sit-down restaurant anytime in the near future. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's a decision everyone's going to have to make. Uh, I don't see myself doing it often, but uh, it was, I don't know, it, it was some, somewhat refreshing to be out of the house and consuming a meal because I've just been here for three months so uh okay uh jacob what have you been doing this week week i just kind of want to plug something i worked on it's been a 
it was a big project actually, bigger than I thought it would be, uh, which is we were able to debut uh, a bunch of images of the artwork in miniatures from the new board game Unmatched Cobble and Fog. And Unmatched is a board game series that I really love. It's a collaboration between uh, restoration games and Mondo games. And it's one of those games that it has very simple rules. You can teach it in less than five minutes. Everybody understands it immediately, but the depth and strategies run deep and it's incredibly replayable. Uh, and I really love it to death. And the basic gist is that it's actually a um, re-implementation of an old game. Uh, that's what Restoration Games does, is they take older game designs, games have been out of print, uh, and they bring them back. They, they they spruce up the rules, give them new art, they, mo- they modernize them. And in the case of this, this was an old game called uh, Star Wars Epic Duels, which is sort of a, you know, Star Wars characters fight each other game with a really well-liked battle system. Uh, but since they didn't have the rights to the Star Wars license, they said, what if we just have like a battle royale between all kinds of characters, both public domain and licensed? So between the various unmatched sets, you can have like King Arthur fighting Bruce Lee. You now the Raptors from Jurassic Park fight Alice in Wonderland. Uh, there's a Bigfoot versus Robin Hood set. And you can mix and match all of this. And each character has their own deck of cards that sort of powers the game. And each character plays completely differently. So part of the fun is learning the deck of cards, learning how each character plays and mixing and matching and learning how to strategize and how to... Uh, you know, repel certain characters, and it's a really amazing game. Uh, Restoration Games they did an incredible job in the design, and because it's a Mondo product, the art on each set is incredible. They get like a lot of regular Mondo artists and other acclaimed folks to do all the individual card art, and it looks amazing. Like it's holding cards in your hand, and it's like you're not you're not bored when it's on your turn because you're admiring <laughs> the art in your hand. And uh, Restoration Games reached out to us and asked if we want to premiere the new set, Cobble and Fog which is uh, Victorian genre characters. So it's uh, Sherlock Holmes, Dracula, Jekyll, Hi- Jekyll and Hyde, uh, and the Invisible Man. Uh, so in theory, uh, I'm very much looking forward to my copy arriving, having Sherlock Holmes uh, face down the raptors in Victorian London. Uh, and if you go on the, the slash.com, we'll put the link in the show notes. I have a big uh, interview with the uh, one of the game designers, with the art director and the artist himself. Uh, and we talk about all kinds of nerdy things and uh, about how they balance the game, about the inspiration for the game. And they confirm that the uh, licensed Buffy the Vampire Slayer set is coming next. Uh, so it's going to be exciting to start adding all that stuff in there. And uh, yeah, I'm, re- I'm really hoping we start having more stuff like this on Slash Mike. I know we've always been sort of a film, TV, and adjacent interests. That's why I cover theme park, occasionally video games. We encourage the other writers, you know, if it interests them, to, you know, pitch it to us or, you know, work on it. Uh, so I'm really hoping this could lead to more board game preview stuff because uh, this was a lot of fun to make. And um, I can't speak, I can only speak anecdotally, but a number of friends who uh, who haven't outplayed Unmatched texted me to say, hey, your your preview convinced me to go buy this game. So maybe go check it out. It's, it's a really good two-player game. So maybe if you're uh, stuck home alone with, with one other person, uh, Unmatched in its various forms is really excellent. And the new set is available through Restoration Games' website right now. Uh, it'll be available on, in stores through regular outlets on the 24th. See, I feel like I would have bought this game already, but the last three months not having anybody to play with, and Kitra doesn't like playing board games or card games as much as I do. Uh, <laughs> it's not a kind of game you can play over Zoom, right? Unless both people had a set, I guess. No, I, I imagine it'd be really, really hard. Um, I mean, it's possible if both people have a set, uh, so you, like you know, you don't have to worry about card hands and stuff, but. I don't know. I, I, I imagine it's a better game when like everybody has more control over their figures. What what is going to happen to tabletop gaming, Jacob? Like in the next like year or two? Because I feel like board game conventions can't happen because that's a lot of people touching the same pieces of paper. Not that like I I guess the CDC has recently said that the virus uh, 
that is not one of the main ways that the virus spreads is surfaces, but it still seems like you're in close proximity and you're touching the plastic things and paper things. Yeah, it's I I don't know, Peter. I know that um my two main gaming stores in town, um one one of them has still has shut down its gaming area entirely. All the tables are cordoned off. You cannot you, you absolutely cannot play games there. Or the other one, which is a actual uh, gaming cafe, which makes most of their money from food and um, people playing games there, has cautiously reopened uh, with like you know tables set far apart and stuff. And you have to bring your own games. They actually don't let, let they have closed off the lending library for now. But even then, I feel like like I've been in there a few times uh, during morning hours when I knew they wouldn't, wouldn't be crowded to spend some money there and support them because I don't want them to die. Because they're a really really great store. Uh, but at the same time, it's like I feel like it's way too early to open up uh, a. Am I a hypocrite for thinking like it's okay to eat at a restaurant if if it, the restaurant's being careful? But a gaming cafe is not okay. I, I don't know. That's that's where I am right now. I guess to be playing games, it's not well, unless you bring your own game. But what's the point? Yeah, I don't know. Like uh, the few times I've actually, um, few times where I have played there, I was not to use a library. It was like you know. Hey, me and my me and my friends are going to go rent out one of their eight person tables, order food and drinks from their bar, and you know, and play games for for four hours. That's and yeah. that's not something I'm ready to do yet. I mean, like, I I play game board games with my wife at home, but you know, I'm I'm not none of my friends and I are ready to you know meet up at all. Yeah, it, it's weird. I see people on my Instagram meeting up with other friends, going on hikes and going you know to parks and stuff like that. I, I am not. I feel like I'm not ready hang out with other people yet as much as like i don't know is is that weird to say like i'm okay going to a, i guess you're saying the same thing so it's it's not completely weird but like i i don't know it, it's like even in the restaurant i'm still far away from anybody and the only person that's near me is the waiter that has a face mask and a face shield yeah i, don't know. I think it's very much a case where you got to decide what your own comfort level is and then make sure the place you're going to is at the very least doing their part I mean, I'm, I don't know, Peter, this is, this is such a yeah. tough thing to talk about because I think we're going to feel like jerks no matter what we do. Yeah. Um, by the way, one thing occurred to me while I was at CityWalk, I forgot to bring this up, is CityWalk has that movie theater I was talking about. That's the one that I see Chris, Christopher Nolan films at. It's it's actually the one that Christopher Nolan likes. It's the one that he uh, recommends and sees his own movies in because it has like one of the biggest IMAX screens in, in California. And uh, it is called, uh, I think it's called Universal Cinema now, even though it's operated by AMC. And I was standing in front of the cinema thinking, it's funny that this AMC theater has like the big Universal logo on it. And they're not going to be able to show Universal Films. <laughs> it's like <laughs> in Universal Studios Hollywood. I don't know. A little strange. But uh, okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh this week, I haven't been watching much. I, or I have been watching a lot of one thing, but I've already talked about that, and that is the USA Network show Suits. Uh, Kitra and I have been binge-watching through this. I think we're up to, like, season three or four, something like that. Uh, I, I do want to mention that last week, I think I kind of made the claim that this was the first uh, elevated show that came from USA Network. A couple people wrote in and mentioned Monk, which has, you know, a... Uh, uh, very awarded uh, performance and stuff like that. Uh, so it, yeah, I guess it's not the first elevated show, but I, I, I would say as a whole, like Monk had some great performances. I'm not sure if I like the show uh, suits. 
uh, is really good. And I hate to say this because I, I hate show. I hate people who say this and I hate shows like this, but suits is good in the first season, but it gets really good in the second season. So if you ever want to give the show a try, I would say stick it out till season two, because the first season is very much. It felt like a different generation of USA network where they were looking for a case of the week kind of show. And it did have like an overarching arc, but starting in season two, it kind of becomes like a lot more serialized and a lot less case of the week. Um, which is something I, I, I prefer my, my television storytelling to be more serialized and not episodic. So, um, yeah. Anyways, I, I just wanted to write again, recommend suits. It, it, it is great at least so far up to like season four, uh, there's nine seasons. So I don't know if it falls off, off the cliff or not, but, uh, we, we are enjoying it. It's, uh, I don't know. It's enjoyable. Although I did learn cause, uh, <laughs> Last week, I admitted that I didn't know that Meghan Markle was married to uh, one of the princes, and you guys made fun of me. Um, Kitra was the one that told me this, uh, and she was telling me more about this, and she was saying that they met in Toronto. Uh, the prince was in Toronto, and she was filming or something like that, and I it, it, it uh, I had the revelation that the show that's set in New York City, and there's a lot of scenes of them like, running around New York city and the, you know, the, the big buildings and stuff. I, I had the realization that it's all lie and it's shot in Toronto with some insert shots of New York city. And uh, now every time they're outside, that's all I can think about is that it's not uh, New York city. It's actually Toronto. Anyways, uh, I, a lot of shows shoot Toronto for New York. That's not like unique or anything, but uh, for some reason I had assumed that suits was actually shot in New York. So it, it was kind of like a, a change of uh, my point of view of watching the show. Um, but uh, Jacob, what have you been watching this week? This week has been a pretty minor week for me. <laughs> I watch a lot of crap. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but in terms of things you should watch, I watched uh, Cape Fear on Netflix. This is the 1991 Martin Scorsese movie. And I watched it because uh, Chris wrote about it in his streaming column. So uh, thank you, Chris, for bringing, my, bringing to my attention that uh, Cape Fear is streaming there. Uh, this was famously the movie that uh, Steven Spielberg was going to direct and ended up swapping with Scorsese, who was making Schindler's List. So they, they traded projects. And this is such an interesting movie because it's it's an Amblin production. Spielberg is a uncredited producer on it. Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall uh, are producers on it. Uh, and it's one of Scorsese's like most outwardly commercial projects. It feels so unlike him at times. It is a uh, horror thriller about a man named Max Cady, played by Rob De Niro who was let out of prison and goes to get revenge against a lawyer who intentionally lost the case uh, to, get, to ensure he went to prison because the lawyer uh, realized he's a bad guy. And the lawyer is played by Nick Nolte here. And this is a remake of the 1962 film with Gregory Peck, except that it sort of uh, dirties up the morals. And that movie is about like, a bad guy going after, you know, um, a good a good family. And this one, the good family is not so good. And there is, you know, a lot of icky things happen. There's a lot, a lot of violence against women, both on screen and implied. So your mileage may vary if this is a movie for you to watch. Uh, but it's very much a uh, Silence of the Lambs, that kind of early 90s style thriller. Not as classy or as good as Silence of the Lambs, but, you know, sort of in that vein. And De Niro is going crazy in his performance. Uh, Nick Nolte kind of this was a good, subtle counterbalance to him. Uh, but other than um, Max Cady being like a Bible spouting villain 
and the threat he provides becoming increasingly biblical. It doesn't feel much like a Scorsese movie. It, he's clearly having fun here. He's clearly leaning into his B-movie side. Uh, I think this and Shutter Island are the two times where Scorsese goes full pulp. Uh, and it's, I think, successful in both times. But also those movies don't always feel as as personal to him. Uh, in the same way, like, you know, any other movie do. This is wedged between Goodfellas and The Age of Innocence, two films that I think are masterpieces. And this one is merely okay. I think it's, I think more people are familiar with the episode of The Simpsons that parodies this uh, movie, like, vividly, uh, more so than um, the movie itself. And I think it's good. I think that if you're a Scorsese fan, it's worth seeing him, you know, in the early 90s, uh, making a movie that because Spielberg told him this movie will be a box office success. This is a, this is a, this is a audience movie. You should make it and get a hit under your belt, uh, which he did. And he did. And it was, it was a big hit, uh, but it hasn't had the longevity of his movies that were perhaps more controversial or less accessible at the time, but have lived longer lives. Uh, I think it's good. It's scary. It's creepy. It, it's, it has a lot of really good moments. Uh, Chris, where do you think this falls on the Scorsese uh, scale for you? I mean, it's it's pretty high up there for me. It's it's got some really great set pieces. You know, the whole <laughs> De Niro strapping himself under the car when they try to escape him, which is like a hundred percent impossible, but it works in the movie. And that whole sequence where they're trying to trap him in the house and he gets the one up on them. Uh, but you're right in that it doesn't really feel like a Scorsese movie. It actually feels a lot like a Spielberg movie, which I always found really fascinating. Like there are shots in this movie. Uh, mostly like establishing shots where you can see um, uh, the visual effect clouds rolling over the house and stuff like that, that, that look very Spielbergian, very like close encounters. And I, I'm pretty sure Scorsese was doing that intentionally since, you know, they, they swapped the movies and him and Spielberg are really good friends. And it, it's almost like this is Scorsese making a Spielberg movie. But of course, because he's Scorsese it's 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 10 times more violent and and brutal than anything Spielberg would ever make but I really dig it I think it it, it's a really entertaining yet nasty movie and uh it's definitely over the top at the time like the entire ending on you know the boat is (laughs) is is very over the top and Robert De Niro basically turns into Freddy Krueger at that point because his face (laughs) gets all burned up and he starts like speaking in tongues and it's it's so much but I, I I get, I don't know, I, I enjoy it because I can tell Scorsese had fun making it. And that's like, that fun comes through the film. Even though it's not really a fun movie, you can tell he enjoyed like the, the freedom of making this, this sort of studio picture where he was able to, yeah, this I, I forget how big a hit this was, but it's, I think it's like his second or third biggest moneymaker of all time. So it was a big deal for him. Yeah, it made close to 100 million uh, domestically. I think it was, it was big enough to inspire Simpsons episodes. Here's my question for the group: How many of you have seen Cape Fear? How many of you have seen the season four episode of The Simpsons that recreates this movie beat for beat with Sideshow Bob as Max Katie? I have seen I've seen both, and uh, yeah, the Simpsons episode is definitely more more famous, more remembered. But yeah, I also think Cape Fear is is great. I saw Cape Fear, but I'm still. Uh a Simpsons virgin. I still have not seen a single episode of that show. <laughs> I haven't seen either. Uh, see, I, wow. I feel like if you, I feel like if you pulled a bunch of millennials, like people our age and younger, more people would know 
like strapping yourself under a car from the Simpsons than from Cape Fear, which and I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like it's one of the best episodes of comedy ever made. The episode of Simpsons is in the top 10 episodes of all time for that show. But at the same time, if I feel like it's it's really overshadowed the movie in some pretty major ways. Uh, but, but but Jacob, I don't think that's like limited to Cape Fear not being oh, like no. a remembered yeah. movie because if you look at like the episode of The Simpsons that takes on Citizen Kane, I think most millennials would probably remember that over actually, or would be able to re- like connect the dots with that than the actual movie Citizen Kane. You're I'm probably curious yeah. about that because like I remember when I was growing up, a lot of uh, you know, I, w- I was really into The Simpsons as a kid, and I remember like seeing The Simpsons, and then later I would watch movies and be like, oh, that's where The Simpsons got that from. And I'm very curious how many people like my age had that same experience where they experienced The Simpsons reference before they realized it was actually a reference to something. But yeah, absolutely. I, I, I that totally is my life. That. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's Cape Fear. I found Netflix. Like I said, if, if you're one of the people who, who, are trying to be a Scorsese completionist. It really is worth your time. Just it, even though it feels like a bit of a outlier for him. Uh, in terms of new movies, I watched Confessional. This is a new Shutter original, the stream on the Shutter streaming service. It is a different kind of found footage movie. It is essentially about two college students who are who are dead. One um, from drowning in a swimming pool. One from an apparent overdose. And somebody has set up a confessional booth somewhere unspecified to interview people who knew them for some kind of art project. And the entire film takes place, uh, the entire film takes place in this confessional booth with the seven people being interviewed in which you slowly realize that the person who's running this, who's running this installation is not making a tribute to, they're essentially interrogating people to try to figure out what happened to try to um, piece together uh, how they were murdered. And uh, bad stuff starts happening. Bad stuff's revealed, bad stuff happened to some of the people in this booth. And, I saw the ending coming a mile away, or not even the ending, like the, 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 the late second act twist, if you will. And I don't think it's as clever as it thinks it is with its reveals, but the structure is really interesting and the performances are mostly interesting. And the idea of, um, of a found footage movie that's less about shaky camera and more about people confessing or trying to avoid confessing uh, to you, the audience, because they know they're cornered and trapped in this booth, uh, ends up being genuinely keep saying the word interesting because it is it's interesting i can't i can't say it's a it's a great movie or maybe it's a pretty good movie uh but i was never bored by it and i was always interested in the mystery even when i felt like i was a step ahead of it i just wish that more people would you know if you're gonna make a found footage movie try to do something unique with it like this and try to create um a structure that makes you a participant in, in, in the action keep you guessing uh and that's confessional streaming on shutter uh, but most of my week, <laughs> most of my week was watching episodes of Bar Rescue on the Paramount Network. I've talked about the show before. It is a nightmare of trash. It is the worst kind of reality TV. But goodness, once you start watching Bar Rescue, it's kind of hard to stop. Uh, it's, it's like a bag of chips. You want you just like, oh, I'll have one more chip. I'll have one more chip. It's like, nope, I'll have one more Bar Rescue because uh, Paramount Network shows two things. They show episodes of Bar Rescue and they show commercials for season three of Yellowstone. And that's literally it. That's, that's all they ever show. And uh, I made a mistake of saying, I'm going to record all the bar rescues this week. I'm just going to hit record on my, on my DVR and let it record everything and have a backlog of junk to put on the background while I do chores and while I paint miniatures. And it turns out that when you do that, you have like 30 new episodes of bar rescue a day. <laughs> Not that many, but you know what I mean. And so I've just been having bar rescue on trying to work through that backlog, realizing this is unsustainable. Eventually I'll have to stop watching. Eventually I'll have to stop 
recording them all because there's just too many. There's thousands of episodes of Bar Rescue, apparently. And it's, they're all the same. They're all John Taffer, a very loud bar expert, walks into <laughs> a, a crappy bar and yells at everybody about how crappy they are. And by the end, um, it's like, we fixed everything. Thank you, John Taffer. You're yelling helped us a lot. Then you Google the bar and realize it shut down six months later anyway. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's the cycle of Bar Rescue. And I watched too much of it. And you should not watch Bar Rescue because you'll be like me and get addicted to it. And, and it's, it's bad for your health. But here I am watching like three episodes of Bar Rescue a day because God help me, I can't stop. Jacob, I'm so surprised that you are addicted to Bar Rescue because, and I love these kind of reality TV shows, but, and I watched Bar Rescue for a couple, you know, maybe a season or something, but John Taffer is just such a dick and such an <laughs> asshole, and there's nothing likable about him at all, it, it, which, like, it's so against you. I feel like you, like, usually appeal to you know, humanity and like goodness. And he just seems like a bad guy and sure he's there to help the the business. But like, I've also read like so many things about the show of how like they just hire people to be like fake employees and do stuff so that he can like yell at them. So it's like not even authentic in, you know, the reality TV uh, level of authentic. Um, I, I prefer restaurant impossible with Robert Irvine, which I know isn't about bars, but it's about restaurants. And he comes in and he actually genuinely seems like a good guy. Uh, it, it does deal with a lot of the same like issues of people that have problems and their, their life problems have gotten in the way with, of the business and him coming in to not only help them revamp their business and find a way to make it profitable, but also, change their lives and make them better people, which I, I feel like you would appeal to you more. I, I have seen several episodes of restaurant impossible. And I like it. The big difference is that there are two seasons of restaurant impossible available on Hulu right now. Uh, yeah. And there's, there's like, I think it's 16 episodes total. <laughs> whereas there are approximately 53,000 episodes of our rescue playing constantly between Yellowstone ads on Paramount <laughs> network. So, Okay. Brad, what have you been watching? Um, so we talked a little bit a while back about uh, Dave, the FX series. It's available on Hulu. Um, and a friend of mine had been uh, imploring me to watch it because he really liked it a lot. He's a big Lil Dicky fan. Uh, and I, I've enjoyed his uh, comedic rap stylings as well. And so I've been interested to check out the series. Finally took the time to do so and watched it over a couple days this week. And this series really is uh, fantastic. It's It's better than I thought it would be. Um, Dave Bard is, uh, or Dave Bird, Dave Bird. Yeah. Dave Bird, um, is really funny in it. And I mean, not only is he, he is legitimately a clever, uh, sharp rapper, but he's very funny in this show. It's, I, I love how he's just this, <laughs> you know, this grown, uh, Jewish guy. And just the way he's awkwardly talking to these rappers, I, you know, like I just, I crack up the conversations they have. Um, you know, there, there are, um, plenty of raps in here from him as well. The supporting cast is also great. It's just, it's a great assembly of characters and it doesn't, this interesting thing too, through, uh, in the show that like never have I ever did where it takes some time to have an episode or two that focuses just on one of the supporting characters and following them, uh, with, you know, a, a minimal amount of the, the main character, uh, coming into it as well. And it's just, just very well done. I, I'm really excited to see. Uh, what they do with season two and yeah if you if, if you're just a fan of comedy in general regardless of whether or not you like uh hip-hop this is a really f fun show to get into chris any chance that you're gonna watch the show now we got two people in the water cooler saying that you should you should watch this 
No. <laughs> I will I will say Chris will would definitely be annoyed just by going to try to watch it because when you go to watch it on Hulu, the background image is that billboard that he hates so much. Yeah. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> Change your poster, then we'll talk, Dave. <laughs> Brad, what else have you been watching? Um, what else have I been watching? I think I kind of forgot, actually. What was I going to talk about? Oh. Well, you, you watched one of, one of my favorite movies from the 90s. Uh, or is it 90s or is it early 2000s? Josie and the Pussycat. Yeah, it's, it's 2001. Yeah, this is the first time I had seen this movie. I just saw that it was on HBO Max. And not too long ago, Mondo did, like, a vinyl release of the soundtrack. And I saw a bunch of people talking about, hey, Josie and the Pussycats is really good. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so I decided to check it out and i've really enjoyed the hell out of it it's it's a fun movie um for being an early 2001 movie it's very self-aware it has kind of the same comedic style as zoolander except instead of mocking the fashion industry it does it with the music industry and really takes aim at like the crass consumerism that uh boy bands and pop stars and all that stuff brought to music and it's, it's not as if consumerism and whatnot hasn't been part of the music industry forever but there's something about the late 90s early 2000s where it was just overboard and so joshi and the quizzy cats is like rife with endless giant tacky product placement that's like you know just sat- satirizing the hell out of it and uh everyone's so great in this movie too rachel lee cook uh is is Josie. this is really the one role that tara reed is actually good in and i think it's because she's kind of playing an exaggerated version of herself, uh, someone who's kind of uh, ditzy with her head in the, in the clouds. Rosario Dawson's also in this. Uh, Alan Cumming, Parker Posey. There, uh, there's a boy band in the movie that's played by Brecken Meyer and Seth Green and Donald Faison. Um, and his name is escaping me, but it's the guy who plays the foreign exchange student in Can't Hardly Wait. Uh, and this movie's from the same writing and directing duo. So if you haven't seen Josie and the Pussycats, if you've sat here thinking that it's just like no no way Uh, like this is dumb this movie is really fun and you should definitely go watch it on hbo max the the filmmakers behind this deborah kaplan and harry elephant elephant uh they have directed some good comedies a very brady sequel is hilarious can't hardly wait is one of my favorite like those kind of movies from the 90s uh they also did like one of the flintstones movies i think yeah they did the the shitty shitty sequel yeah yeah and then I think some bad movies since then. And I'm learning right now that Kaplan was married to Brecken Meyer. Well, th- I didn't know that. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Uh, what else have you been watching? Uh, and then I, my girlfriend and I rewatched When Harry Met Sally. Uh, we just felt like watching something familiar and heartwarming and funny. And man, I just love this movie so much. Uh, this is definitively 100% my favorite romantic comedy of all time. Um, when you When you watch this movie you realize just how every romantic comedy since has tried to live up to when Harry met Sally. So many of the things that we find to be cliche about romantic comedies today come from when Harry met Sally. And, but like they, they all come up short, no matter how good they are, just because this movie is perfect. Every single scene is just tight and and crisp. And the dialogue is so clever and it, it has so, so much rich character development. Every single scene just, by the way they're talking to each other like just the dialogue is so eloquently written um and so you know it's just one of those movies where you it's it's hard to improve upon how great it is no matter how often they try and every single time i watch it uh i fall in love with it all over again and it's you know i it makes me wish that uh you know billy crystal was still doing 
stuff not necessarily like this but just that he was still doing movies or, or tv shows or, or something very often because he's so charming and, and funny in this movie it, it also really bums me out that meg ryan isn't really around anymore especially now that you know hollywood has started to give better roles to uh you know women as they get older in their career and i feel like she could r- really still do some great stuff if she um you know was had stuck around for a little bit longer um but yeah it's this movie is directed by rob reiner it's written by Nora efren which is a big part of the reason uh, you know, wh- why it's so good as well, because she's an incredible writer and she's been responsible for great uh, romantic comedies herself. So, yeah, if, if for some reason you haven't seen When Harry Met Sally, this is the definitive romantic comedy. Is Meg Ryan not around anymore? I didn't even know this. I mean, she I guess she, she hasn't... hasn't really done anything. So if, she's, if she's doing stuff, I haven't seen it or heard of it. Yeah, I guess 2016 is the last time that she kind of did something, and it was a directorial. major movie I remember her being in was The Woman, which wasn't very well received. Yeah. H.A., uh, you are a resident rom-com person. Where does uh, When Harry Met Sally rank in uh, the best of the best? Uh, I basically agree with Brad. It's, it is the best of the best. It's just an all-time of a rom-com, and... Uh, Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal are so charming. The dialogue by Nora Ephron is so musical. Rob Reiner gives this wonderful autumnal sheen to this entire film. And it's so warm and cozy, like all the sweaters that they wear throughout the film. And I also adore it completely. Um, so, yeah, I completely agree with everything Brad has said. And, um, yeah, it's just it's such a great movie. And um, I, I, it's kind of funny, too, because it's one of the few movies that appeals – heavily to um male viewers as well as female viewers like so many rom-coms that are considered the greats are very just um considered like not as classics as when harry met sally but when harry met sally somehow um is able to transcend that gender barrier which i think is really interesting yeah okay let's move on to chris uh chris we bugged you earlier about seeing dave we actually have a surprise for everybody you actually did watch dave I did, but it was a completely different Dave. I watched the Kevin Klein movie, Dave, which is now streaming on Hulu. Uh, for those who don't know, this is that film where Kevin Klein plays a guy who just happens to look exactly like the president, who is also played by Kevin Klein. And when the president has a stroke, Kevin Klein steps in to pretend to be him. Um, it's a very funny, very charming movie. It also is a movie that feels like science fiction now because it's about people in politics who actually care about stuff and want to change things for the better, which doesn't happen anymore because everyone involved with politics is a monster. But in this movie, <laughs> there are good politicians and it's it's a warm movie. It's a funny movie. Sigourney Weaver is in it. She's very good. Kevin Klein is great. Uh, you know, it's it's a delightful little film. I haven't seen it in a few years, so I wanted to rewatch it because it's now on Hulu. And I did. And it's good. Um, but, but, by the way, do you think there has ever been in history a time where the president has hired a president double to appear? Oh, him? I'm sure that's happened. Not like not like the movie Dave, but I'm sure yeah, yeah. something like that has happened at least <laughs> once. Uh, you know, and I know like on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, like Saddam Hussein used to have like doubles too, like people who looked like him in public. Uh, but no one wants to make a movie about that. Although maybe they should, that would be, that would be an interesting film. Um, funnily, what funnily else? Enough, uh, I think Kevin Klein is the only actor who has ever played a president and a double for a president twice, because he also did, did the same <laughs> thing in wild, wild west where, yeah, where he, <laughs> he was Gordon. And then he, uh, pretended he was the president in that movie as well and he played the president 
Wow, yes. you remembered something from Wild Wild West. Uh, I, was, I was a dumb kid once, and I used to watch that movie all the time. <laughs> uh, Chris, you also saw a new movie. Uh, yeah, I saw two new movies, actually. So one is The King of Staten Island, which is the new Judd Apatow film with uh, Pete Davidson in it. Um, it's it's fine. Uh, like most Judd Apatow movies, it's way too long. It's over two hours. No comedy should really ever be over two hours, especially this one. Uh, and what's worse is there are there are all these like loose threads in this movie that you could easily have cut to make this like a tighter, funnier, more concise film. And because Judd Apatow just can't do that, he doesn't do that. And they just hang there. Uh, Pete Davidson is good in this. You know, it proves that, you know, I, I don't think Pete Davidson is very good on SNL because he's not a great live performer. He's He's one of those people who just constantly breaks and while that can be funny sometimes it you know if you're doing it all the time it it kind of indicates that you're not really cut out for for live stuff like that but you know when he's acting like in this he's 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 good and uh marissa tomei is really good in this bill burr is surprisingly great in this but the movie itself is just sort of so so i i didn't really enjoy it the way i've liked some other apatow films but you know your mileage may vary uh then i so watched... wait where, where, where does this rank in like the apatow filmography like the films he's actually directed oh, man i don't i mean i haven't seen every single film he's directed but this would be very close to the bottom for me based on the things i've seen like this is it, not it, is it better than train wreck uh, I don't think I've actually ever seen Trainwreck. So Tra- Trainwreck's really good. I'm not sure where that's coming from. <laughs> I like Trainwreck, but I think that's probably not one of his best films. I mean, considering he's only directed what six movies, is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, but like, what, what, what would you rank his movies, Brad? Like, you you probably have thought about this. I mean, I haven't seen King of Staten Island yet. Um, but I mean, it's see, that's something that I would also have to think about too. I I, I feel like. You know, Knocked Up and 40-Year-Old Virgin are among his best. Uh, this is 40 is probably the worst. Funny People Somewhere in the Middle and Trainwreck is above that. So you're putting Trainwreck in the middle? Yeah, right in the middle. Because it's not his best, but it's still I think it's still a really good movie. Largely yeah. thanks to you know Amy Schumer and Bill Hader just, just being great together. Yeah, I'm curious to watch this, but uh, Chris is uh, bringing me down, saying it's not going to be good. So. I didn't say it was not. It, it's fi- It's the very definition of a fine, fine film. Mm. It's, a, it's very forgettable. Once it's over, you'll never think about it again. Let me put it like that. Chris, uh, I was excited about a new movie. There was a well, new movie for once. Where can we see this anyways? Uh, this is available to rent, I guess, on everywhere, like iTunes and Amazon and, and things like that. I, I got a screener of it. Uh, on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, uh, this is a new movie that is good, and it's The Five Bloods, the latest Spike Lee joint, and that is now on Netflix. Um, this is also a long movie. It's like two hours and 30 minutes, but unlike The King, the King of Staten Island, it, it sort of earns that runtime. And this this is a really good movie. Um, I don't know if I would say it's like one of Spike Lee's best movies, but uh, Spike Lee is one of those filmmakers who never really makes a, a quote-unquote bad movie. He's always doing something interesting. But uh, this was pretty damn good. Um, Delroy Lindo, especially, who is one of those actors who's who's always good and stuff, but this it's probably the best performance of his career. He has this long monologue near the end of the film where he's talking directly to the camera, which is something Spike Lee has done many times before he did it in 25th hour. He did it and do the right thing. Uh, and you know, he does it here and 
it's just it'll it, it like took my breath away of how great the performance is through the whole movie and this one one scene in particular so that is now on netflix i highly recommend that uh also on netflix twister i think brad said he watched this last week and i watched it too um uh, I, I, I love Twister. Twister is a very stupid movie. Oh my God. What a, what a painfully stupid movie. This is, the script is just abysmal, but it's so much fun. Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt are, are a delight together. Philip Seymour Hoffman is a lot of fun. I love Carrie Elways as the evil tornado hunter. Like, I don't know why this movie needed to have villains in it, but it does. <laughs> <laughs> like, and you know they're villains because they all drive black vans and then the, the the good guys have like the 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 uh, more down-to-earth rusty vans that you know they don't have corporate sponsorship it's so dumb it's so stupid but uh, it's so watchable and fun and it's fun it's, it's so much fun it's very entertaining and the you know most of the effects really hold up you know even though this was like 1996 i think the the effects are very solid you know, the, you know those twisters look mostly real and again it doesn't it's not high art but it's an entertaining movie you Uh, know what i like i feel like if they remade this today it would have to have like higher stakes where like a city is in danger from a a twister and they have to stop it or something or something stupid it's like not that there isn't stakes in this movie but it's not you know i feel like to make a a special effects movie this today you would need to the world would be at the I mean, they ba- <laughs> yeah, well, Geostorm, but then they basically kind of did that without the Storm Shapers with Into the Storm. And I, I mean, and this movie goes, Twister also makes sure that the Twisters are personal because they kill Helen Hunt's dad and then they come after her aunt. <laughs> it's like the Twister has like a vendetta against Helen Hunt and she's she's got to stop those Twisters. Uh, it's anyway. Like Yes, exactly. Uh, and then and, uh, finally, I watched Palm Springs. Uh, I got a screener of this. This is a movie that played at Sundance and Ben saw it. And uh, I seem to remember this was like a really hot ticket at Sundance. And the first time Ben tried to see it, he didn't even get in because they like <laughs> oversold the, the screening or something like that. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. I remember like a lot of people were just like furious. Like, how dare you, Palm Springs? Anyway, <laughs> uh, this is fun. Uh, I don't think it's fantastic it's another one of those you know groundhog day time loop movies where you know you someone relives the same day over and over again and it does have some clever twists on it um there's just some plot threads that don't quite work like there's this entire subplot with jk simmons i won't you know spoil what it is but i don't think it works at all and i i'm like i was like why is this in the movie it shouldn't be here because it's like distracting but you know it's it's a it's a fun entertaining film andy sandberg is, is really good in it um the, the lead actress whose name i don't have in front of me right now she it's uh, Kristen miliotti yes yeah she's good in it and you know it, it's it's got some good laughs and it, it, it does some clever things with it with the time loop uh, uh element so yeah it, it's worth a watch this will be on hulu at some point this month i don't i don't know the exact date but july 10th is when oh, it's scheduled month. for release okay. so, yeah so yeah, that's going right to Hulu, and I think it's going to drive-ins too. So, take your pick. And uh, oh, so that's all you've been watching, uh, Ben. What have you been watching this week? I really only watch one movie that I think is worth mentioning. Uh, it's a film called Stay Tuned from 1992. Has anyone here ever seen this by any chance? I love this as a kid. You know this movie? Okay, I yeah. literally never heard of it before, and I it's... stumbled across it on Amazon Prime Video. Has anybody else seen it? 
I have this and uh, mom and dad save the world. I always get confused because they like came out at the same time and they have like the same sort of premise yeah. and they're both not good. Yeah. And I think I, I, I actually think, oh, yeah, totally I think I've good. only ever seen bits and pieces of both. And like Chris, I always confuse them too. Uh, I actually had, I kind of had fun with this movie, like having no idea of really what to expect, except for this is a movie where people get sucked into a television. Um, and, and it came out in 1992 and it stars John Ritter and Pam Dauber from Mork and Mindy. <laughs> I was, I, I guess I had my expectations set pretty low. Uh, Peter Himes directed this thing. He's the guy behind movies like Time Cop and Sudden Death, which, uh, this movie is nothing like either of those films, but, um, it's basically just about this guy who loves watching TV and he's like sort of a, a middle-aged schlub who doesn't value his, his family or anything. And he just would rather watch TV than do anything else. And he's obsessed. And uh, Jeffrey Jones, who played the principal in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, plays the devil's right-hand man, basically, like hell's top TV executive, because the premise of the movie is that Satan loves watching television, but he evidently doesn't like just watching normal TV. He likes uh, watching human beings sucked into TV and then like uh, run through a gauntlet of a bunch of different shows that are kind of close to shows that were on TV in 1992, but not exactly right. Um, so this whole thing is like a satire of TV, like and it's it's TV and movies too. There are there are um, parts where the characters get sucked into this TV, and basically they just hop channels throughout the whole film as they're trying to figure out their way out of this scenario. And if they can survive for twenty four hours, they get released back into the real world. So it's it's a really goofy premise. Um, it's actually a really a pretty goofy movie as well. But I think I was I just came away being pretty impressed with like how much movie is crammed into this thing. It's only 88 minutes long, but there are tons of locations and costume changes and uh, different styles that that are employed as they as these characters jump through these channels. And Eugene uh, Levy is in this as like a an ass-kissing demon underling who who works for uh, Jeffrey Jones's character. Eric King, who played Dokes on Dexter, is really young in this movie and he plays this ambitious intern who's looking to try to uh, basically knock Jeffrey Jones's uh, demon off of his perch. You never actually see Satan in the movie, which I found slightly disappointing because it, the movie just paints him out to be like, or basically it, it lays him out to be like this, this being who's just like constantly watching TV. And I just really wanted to see how the movie would, <laughs> would actually visualize that. Like what kind of TV does Satan watch? But uh, the movie never really goes there, but um, it's super, super cheesy, really, really, um, I mean, I mean, I, I, I have a hard time recommending it with a straight face, but I do feel like the premise is really interesting and would be a perfect candidate for a modern remake. If, yeah. if um, another studio or something could get the rights to all of the different IP that are, you know, that that make up the popular TV shows and, and stuff like that that are on the air right now and could have characters jump into those worlds, which sounds like a, a pretty... Um, <laughs> an uphill battle for any any studio to be able to do that uh but i i think the results could be really really cool so um there's definitely some cringeworthy stuff in here but i at the end of the day kind of found myself uh loosely enjoying stay tuned so that's on amazon prime video if you want to check that out and i think what you you didn't mention i unless i missed it is that some of these tv shows or many of these tv shows are kind of like parodies so 
like there's like three men and Rosemary's baby. Right. There's, yes. Like Northern overexposure. So it's all about the puns. It's, it's, yeah. There's a uh, murder. She likes and uh 30 <laughs> something to life where people are in prison for, for life sentences. Yeah. There's some really, really stupid ones too. That That's actually like what I guess emblematic of the movie as a whole, because some of them I feel like are like, Oh yeah, that's kind of clever. And then there's some that are like uh Dwayne's underworld, which is like a riff on Wayne's world where it's like, all right, you went a little too far for that one. Like it's, it's not quite um, as natural a joke as you could have gotten somewhere else. And then there's, there's one that I remember from uh, that, that riffs on my three sons, but it's just my three sons of bitches. I'm like, that's just lazy. <laughs> like, come on. Uh, so, you know, if you actually get like a, uh, a writer who cares, I think, and and who puts some extra work into finding those puns. Maybe hire a uh, Megan Amram, who is like a famous. Uh, she she writes a bunch of stuff, and she's written for Parks and Recreation, The Good Place, and all that. And like a lot of the um, the puns on in the background on The Good Place uh, are sort of attributed to her. Um, so maybe get get her to to uh, write a stay tuned remake. I would watch the hell out of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I would recommend this, but it was, I enjoyed it as a kid and I, I, I do feel like there's something here. Like I remember a few years ago, uh, you know, they had that movie grindhouse, which was, uh, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. They made these fake grindhouse movies and in between it. They had these uh, trailers like, uh, made by like Edgar Wright and Eli Roth. And I, I remember for a few years, people loved these trailers. Like, um, what was the trailer? Like Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, and like yeah. Shetty was one of them, and that turned into a full oh, yeah. full length movie. I, I know Eli Roth for a few years was saying that he was going to make a movie with these trailers. He had this idea of a way to make it so it's not just a bunch of trailers that there was a story throughout. And I was thinking maybe it was going to be something like Stay Tuned, where someone gets trapped in you know uh, the old in horror movies, you know, museum of trailers that he has <laughs> in his house or something. That would be kind of cool. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I definitely think there's probably some way to reboot this for modern audiences. But yeah, uh, Jacob, this feels like something you must have seen. I've never heard of it until I edited Ben's article about it the other day. Oh, wow. OK, moving on. H.T., what have you been watching? Well, Peter, I watched a pretty foul new movie this week. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? Chris Chris said it first on Twitter. I and know. actually I um <laughs> I considered um making that part like that pun part of my headline in my review for Artemis Fowl, which is on the site. Um and, but I couldn't find one that could quite communicate my rage and irritation at this adaptation. Um Artemis Fowl is a new movie directed by Kenneth Branagh that hits Disney Plus today. And I will just tell everyone, don't watch it. Um a little background. Uh, I was a big fan of the Artemis Fowl books uh, written by Owen Culfer uh, growing up. The first book was published in 2001, and Owen Culfer famously described it or pitched it as um, Die Hard with Fairies, which sounds like a very silly premise, and it is. Um, it's just, uh, it was such a fun and tongue in cheek and kind of radical uh, book for young readers um, and like myself back then um, who were mostly used to fantasy books that painted a pretty black and white picture of um, 
of uh, good versus evil of heroes and protagonist of heroes and villains. And um, in Artemis Fowl, your protagonist is the villain. Uh, he's a 12 year old boy genius slash criminal mastermind who um, basically pulls off this uh, kidnapping of a fairy in order to ransom it for one ton of gold. And he's depicted as a really remorseless and uh, ruthless type of character uh, who gets sort of redeemed further on in later books. But it's it's it was so fun and refreshing reading that book when I was young and seeing this character who's just pretty um, – uh, unsympathetic and and having him be the antagonist that all the other characters have to either overcome or um try to make better and there is like some glimmers of sympathy within it and that was kind of what was fun it was a little bit less a little bit more morally gray kind of um ya books than uh, what i was used to and the there's i don't know how many books there are now i i have about seven of them i think it kept going and it have never really had a um a big endpoint like Harry Potter. Each book was basically a new sort of uh, heist that was um, bigger in scale and bigger in stake. And the way that Owen Colfer wrote was just really fun and tongue in cheek and uh, also filled with puns. Like the um, uh, leprechauns, for example, are actually the LEP recon. So it's like a police force within the fairy underworld. And it's like a fun tongue, like a fun little pun based off like of leprechaun so there's a lot of little things like that and just a, a very fun not high literature in the slightest but it was just such a unique and refreshing book that felt like an antithesis almost to all the harry potters and fantasy books that were coming out in the wake of harry potter um and so all of that all of that fun unique refreshing elements of artemis fowl are completely gone and erased in the kenneth Branagh version they just took everything that made um this this uh, property so interesting and um, bastardized it and just ran it through the mill the mill of just making it as generic and tepid and boring as possible and it's such a it's filmed in such an inert way too with CGI that looks like it came out of the early two thousands and um, it's uh, the dialogue is wooden it has it has no fun with it and it just completely sands down the the title character too and try to tries to turn him into a more sympathetic hero. And um, I had actually kind of dreaded watching this screener um, before I got signed the review. I had um, visited the set of Artemis Fowl back in 2018 and immediately just could tell um, that this was going to be a completely complete departure from the source material in a way that felt very um, sleek and Disney-fied and completely toothless. And uh, I just, uh, I absolutely hated it. I was so angry. And uh, <laughs> writing the set visit report, I was probably like the angriest I had been writing something. I was just like, oh God, I don't want to write about this. And then I ended up writing like a thousand words in my review. So you can read that later. Um, but there's just, there's just so many issues with this movie, regardless of whether it is a good adaptation or not. It's just not a good movie. It, um, has uh the plot is just consists of things that happen with no buildup and have no bearing on the overall narrative arc um josh gad is i don't know what he's doing he has like this uh throaty christian bale 
Rath, like in Batman Begins, Rath the entire time. And the movie begins with him narrating, which as soon as that happened, I was like, oh no, I have to hear this for like the rest of the movie. And he keeps doing it. And like the movie just kind of lets him run free with his improv, which none of which is very funny. Um, and I'm, maybe your uh, mileage may vary based on like how much you enjoy Josh Gad, but if you do not, there's a lot of him here and none of it is good. Um, uh, and Judy Dench is also doing a weird raspy voice too. I felt like they were doing some sort of weird rasp off and I don't know what it was, what was happening. Uh, none of the performances are good. And, um, there's just like some also very, uh, eyebrow raising sort of racial caricatures in this movie that I don't think existed in the books, at least, or weren't like as, um, obvious, at least, um, one of the things was like a recasting with, um, an, Nonzo Anozi, yeah, Nonzo Anozi, who uh, was cast as um, the Artemis Fowl's bodyguard, whose name is Butler. And um, I, I feel like they didn't realize the real problems that ca came with casting a black man as a, a character named Butler, who uh, is part of a long line of characters named Butler, who has served the, fowl, the family for generations. And I don't think they realized the problems going into that. Um, in the book, I, he's uh, described as like a Eurasian character. Um, and it's just, I feel like uh, that was part of Kent Bronick just wanting to cast one of his friends and not realizing the implications of that. Uh, but there's also just like some imagery with the goblins and them being dressed in um, uh, costumes that basically imply that they are uh black so it's just uh it's 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 not good it's not a good movie guys um <laughs> don't like it what else and it, it, it also sounds like i mean I, I know jacob said in the slack channel he was he was a little worried that maybe your dislike of the film was based on having an attachment to the source material and it being so different but it turns out everybody hates this movie yeah yeah, no, I I had basically, I kept my expectations low for how close the source material would be because I just knew going in that it was going to be different. But even then, knowing that, it's just a bad, badly made movie. Yeah. Uh, what else have you been watching? Um, other movies I've been watching. I watched a, a film called I'm No Longer Here, which is a Mexican uh, drama written and directed by Fernando Frias de la Parra. It's on Netflix. Um, it was, I think it was a, it was a festival darling of some sort. It screened at several festivals, including the Tribeca Film Festival, and I think, um, a couple other ones, but it's, uh, it's follows a, uh, a young boy in Monterey, Mexico, um, a teenager who, uh, is a uh, part of this counterculture of Colombia, which is like a, this lifestyle that consists of dancing to a music called cumbia. I'm going to butcher this word i'm sorry cumbia rebajada um which is a slowed down version of cumbia and it's it's a really interesting sort of snapshot um and and like look into this counterculture that i was not aware of and that i'm sure is like very rarely depicted on screen um this counterculture mostly they um they wear really bad clothes and really eccentric hairstyles and um they just just want to dance and um and to this music the entire time and it's um it's it's almost like this sweet slice of life um film except for the fact that uh this teenager ulysses uh gets in trouble with the local um gangs and has to flee to america and um to um uh survive and he 
ends up in New York City where he uh, tries to build life for himself, but he is really isolated and feels um, just very um, alienated because of like his love for this music that none, no, no people, even like the people of um, Mexican, the Mexican communities that he hangs out with uh, can really understand. And it's a it's really kind of meandering and sweet uh, little uh, cultural snapshot of cultural identity and um, it's um, it's a wonderful film, and uh, it, I I really enjoyed it. And it has like this, this great um, energy and rhythm to it, um, and it kind of reminds me of less of like immigrant dramas, but more just of those kind of um, uh, journeys of self actualization that you see in mo- almost more white dramas like Francis Ha or something. And I I, I really I really like this film quite a bit. Um, that's I'm no longer here on Netflix. And um, I also watched Lust Caution, which is the Ang Lee um, movie from 2007 starring Tony Leung and Tang Wei. This is the movie that famously uh, is one of the most uh, erotic films, I think, of all time. I think it's on several of those lists. It's got slapped with an NC-17 rating, and um, I think it got the lead actress banned from acting in China for a bit just because of her participation in the abundant sex scenes in this film. It's based off of a 1979 novella by Eileen Chang and uh, apparently inspired by the real-life... uh, life of a Chinese spy named Zhang Pingru, who attempts to assassinate a um, Japanese collaborator. And so it's, it's set in 1930s, 1940s uh, Hong Kong, and it follows a group of university students who attempt to stage an assassination of a Chinese official who's working for the puppet government ruled by the Japanese army. And it's you know, it's an espionage film um, that is incredibly sensual. It en- ends up, um, the students end up um, using the most attractive member of their group to try to seduce this official and, um, you know, uh, trap him. But uh, it's, it's also incredibly long. It's about two hours and 39 minutes. And um, I... I have to say, like, even though it's it it's um, famous for being like one of the most erotic films, I think they could have cut back a couple of the sex scenes. I actually enjoyed the first half of the film a little bit more, where it was um, a lot of uh, moody sort of espionage with the sensual with sensuality uh, sensual undertones were there, but um, they weren't quite as explicit as like the second half of the film. Um, but it actually it ends up being more of like a riff off of um, like a sexy riff of, Notor- of Hitchcock's Notorious, um, the film starring Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. Um, and uh, I always enjoy a sexy Notorious riff, but uh, uh, and I, I think that like it's a really sumptuously shot and uh, richly made film with some great performances from Tony Leung and uh, Tang Wei. But uh, yeah, I kind of could have cut back a couple, even at, at the point um, uh, that just like towards like the, the third or fourth, like explicit sex scene. I was like, all right, this, the, the plot's kind of slowing down a little bit, guys. But um, it's it's a beautifully made film and um, it's streaming now on Netflix. Very cool. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating this week? Um, tried some new treats. Um, there's a new flavor of Pringles yet again, Pr- both Pringles and Oreo. It seems like they have new flavors all the time. Uh, this one you can only get in Walgreens and it's uh, a sweet corn flavor. Uh, and it, uh, I actually really like it a lot. Um, it's, uh, the buttery flavor definitely comes out first. 
Um, and then you get the sweetness that does resemble that of sweet corn if you uh, had it uh, corn on, on corn on the cob. Um, it, it also kind of reminds me if they made like a popcorn flavored Pringle, which would be something that seems useless because if you want popcorn, maybe just have popcorn. But at the same time, if you want sweet corn, maybe just have sweet corn. Uh, but I always just like trying these weird flavors. So yeah, th- this one's actually uh, a pretty good one, a, a unique flavor that they haven't really given to uh, a potato chip before, at least not not that I have seen. Uh, so that that's only at Walgreens. You can get that one. Um, I also found uh, this a different flavor of Swedish fish. Uh, that are um, based on crushed soda flavors. So they, uh, they're the little mini Swedish fish, so, and they have orange, strawberry, pineapple, and grape. Um, and they don't really have the same uh, kind of like carbonated soda flavor that you get when you get gummies that are um, created from various soda flavors, like, or even like jelly beans that have soda flavors. Uh, but they're still pretty good if you if you like Swedish fish. Uh, you know, it's it's a nice change of pace from the regular flavor and the even the other uh, tropical flavor and uh, artificial fruits that they have. Um, and then this isn't really necessarily anything special, or at least it won't seem like it. But I got a root beer float from Arby's, and you know it, it's it's whatever because root beer floats that you can get them at a lot of different places. Usually they're really only good if you get them out of like a nice frosty glass mug. Um, but for, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was just because it was hot on this particular day or if I was just craving one after I heard it, but this was such a good root beer float. And I, a part of me thinks it's because it seems like that they use soft serve ice cream in it so that the ice cream dissipates in the root beer. Um, not super quickly, uh, but quickly enough that after a few minutes, it's basically like you're drinking a root beer float milkshake which is awesome. Uh, and it reminded me of actually, there was a, a while back, like a few years ago, um, Burger King had a Dr. Pepper milkshake. And I loved that so much. And I was really disappointed when it uh, was taken away. But the, the way Arby's makes their root beer floats and how quickly the ice cream uh, mixes with the root beer is the closest basically that I, I've seen to getting uh, something akin to that. And I, it was just really good. So if you want a nice, cheap, quick root beer float and you don't have like a, a drive-in kind of restaurant anywhere near you, I, I would say go get a root beer float from Arby's. I would have never thought that Arby's root beer float would be something you'd I, I didn't Brian. think so either. And it's, uh, you know, I saw that they had them and I was like, well, that's weird, but whatever. And I was craving one and tried it. And, and here we are today. Um, okay, let's move on to what we've been playing, Jacob. Besides uh, what Unmatched, the board game you mentioned, or the card game you mentioned earlier, uh, what have you been playing? I fell back into playing Cities Skylines, which is a uh, city building sim game that came out in 2016. Uh, since then, they've released a whole bunch of expansions, and they were part of a, a humble bundle package where you, you know, go on for for a good cause, buy a bunch of games for a uh, reduced price. So I was able to get. All expansions for like 18 bucks. So I've been playing it again. This game's really good. Uh, I'm not sure if I, have, if I have the patience to commit to it in a way that the best players probably would. Uh, but like SimCity, uh, it's kind of like what, what you want out of a out of a modern day SimCity game. You start with a bunch of land, you build roads, you zone land for residential commercial purposes or industrial purposes. You build all the water and piping networks. You make sure your electricity grid is okay. You manage tourism. You build bus stations and build bus routes. And eventually you're trying to run an entire city. You can, you can micromanage taxation on various areas. You can uh, create different industries and uh, based on what's available in the land. And I feel like I have a pattern with it 
where I start a new city, I play it for about two to three hours, reach a point where I realize my traffic is a nightmare and I don't know how to fix traffic, so I start over <laughs> to a different city. Uh, yeah, every if if you are uh, listening to this and you play City Skylines, you have a good route, a good tip for building good traffic routes and for building highways effectively. Please let me know because all my highways are a disaster and never fixes my traffic problems. Uh, but yeah, I enjoy playing City Skylines for two to three hours at a time realizing i would never be a good city planner and quitting and then playing again the next day uh it's a good game uh and i i, I wish i was better at it i wish i had the patience to really go in all the menus and learn how to build the subways and learn how to properly get um like real highway systems going because right now my cities are massive metropolises full of entirely you know little roads <laughs> getting around them is horrible and my schools are burning down because my fire my fire trucks can't get to the schools in time because my road systems are completely messed up uh so yeah it's, it's really good uh and i really do recommend it, it has a really cool art style where uh it's realistic but if you zoom in sort of takes on that tilt shift photography look so it's hmm. a nice looking game uh and i think it's, it's available for pc i think there's a nintendo switch version now but i can't imagine playing without a mouse and keyboard i can't even imagine trying that uh yeah it's really good and if you play it and have good tips uh let me know email this show (laughs) it it feels like you like building the city but you don't like dealing with the problems involved with running a city all my problems can be solved by a good highway system which i I don't know how to build it's always a mess (laughs) how accurate do you think a game like this is to like if a real city planner played this would he run into the same problems you're running into He'd, or probably, do you he'd think... probably do better than me. I mean, the last game I was playing, I was having a problem where <laughs> I didn't have enough cemeteries. There were dead bodies piling up and no no, no hearses to go pick them up, <laughs> which I don't think would happen in real life, but it is something to think about. Like, I had to build more I'd have uh, more cemeteries. Okay. Uh, City Skylines. Where can you play that? Uh, PC and uh, Nintendo Switch. But like I said, can't vouch for the Switch version. Okay. Uh, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns. Show us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you on Monday. Peter. Peter, I'm not, not going to wait this time. I've opened up the uh, Gantuan Book of Insult, Offense, and Affrontery. Sharp retorts, reposts, cost equips, imply put down to the Louis A. Safian. And nothing you can say or do will stop me from reading from this book today on page 281. Jacob, the bodies are piling up in your city. You need to go fix that. I think that's more important than this joke book. No, no, Peter, um, this is no laughing matter. This is a joke book. All right. To page 281. Egotists. Egotists. Uh, Peter. Success hasn't changed him one bit. He's the same stinker he always was. Uh, okay. Success hasn't changed Peter one bit. He's the same stinker he always was. Uh, <laughs> what a stinker. Success hasn't changed oh, Peter one bit. He's the same stinker on. he always was. I, I need a laugh, Peter. I, I need a laugh. Uh, ha, ha, ha. There we go. All right, Chris, just get into a conversation with him, and the night will have a thousand eyes. Eyes is in the letter I written out. Oh, all right. Uh, it wasn't funny until you explained that part. Yeah. HT, she, she's never been known to say an unkind thing about anyone. That's because she only talks about herself. Ah, uh, it's true. That's a, good, that's a good one. I like that one. Brad, he thinks he's worth a lot of money just because he has it. Gosh, I wish I did.
<laughs> and Ben, money has bought him everything except sense and humility. <laughs> Thank you for your laughter. It's nourishing. Have a good week, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>